Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to The Lens, Historians in Popular Media. I'm Garrett Wright. And I'm Gabe Moss. We're very happy to be joined today by our colleague Marlon Londonio. Hi, Marlon. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. And Marlon, you're here to talk about sort of the intersection of popular media and history with the Netflix original Narcos. Right. Uh, I think that what's interesting when we look at Narcos is the way that Colombian history is represented with regards to violence, something that is certainly endemic to Colombia's history, but also something that is not its entirety or its essence. And uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you study here at UNC. Sure. So I am a first-year master's student working on Latin American military history, specifically the Thousand Days War, which was fought in Colombia at the turn of the 20th century. Um, but more broadly speaking, my family comes from Colombia, and so I certainly have a, a personal interest in seeing the way that uh, my family's history is represented in these types of shows. So let's start kind of basic. You said you're interested in how Narcos and maybe other pieces of popular media portray uh, Colombia's history as as being particularly violent. Could you talk about how that plays out in the Netflix show Narcos? Yeah, so Narcos starts uh, in Colombia uh, in the late 70s and early 80s with Pablo Escobar's ascension to power and the formation of uh, the Medellin cartel and the types of violence that emerged in the escalatory war between the drug kingpins and Colombia's government. Being a Netflix-produced series, Narcos spares no expense when it comes to its production value, and that certainly includes its representations of on-screen violence. There's a lot of blood. It's highly stylized. The cinematography emphasizes the action and the drama of the violence, and I think it does so in a way that glorifies it as well. The drug kingpins and the police officers who are the antagonists in this conflict have snappy one-liners. They glower at each other from behind the shadows and they brandish flashy Uzis and other cool, exciting weapons as they play it out across a battlefield that is backwards Colombia. So what do you mean by backwards Colombia? Well, the way that Colombia is portrayed makes it seem like it's this despondent third world country wallowing in its own inability to pull itself out of the situation that it finds itself in during narcos, being the, the narco violence, the drug trafficking, and and the pattern of, of violence and terrorism that in reality did affect uh, the people of Colombia. But what it doesn't emphasize or what it doesn't necessarily take into consideration is the fact that nonetheless, Colombia is a country with major modern cities. The capital, Bogota, has millions of people. So do its secondary cities, Cali and Medellin. In these cities, you have international commerce. You have centers of culture and, and media production that while there were battles that took place in the jungle, in these types of coca farms, that that's not what the entirety of the country looks like. And that, in fact, that's not where the majority of people live. 
So is, Nar- is Narcos unique in its disproportionate focus on what you're calling the so-called backwards Colombia? If anything, I would say that as far as an American-produced series goes, Narcos is quite generous in its portrayal of Colombia. So despite the fact that I think it's problematic in its representation, when you compare it to the way that Colombia is represented in, say, the action films of the 80s or the 90s or even the early 2000s, even if Colombia isn't the main focus, if it appears in a scene, uh, it will be even worse. So in, in that sense, Narcos actually does have a bit more of nuance to it because it still does take city life into account. What it doesn't necessarily do is emphasize or elaborate on the geographic diversity that is Colombia, that you have the capital Bogota being high up in the Andes, but then you have on the border with Brazil, Amazon rainforest, and then you have up near the isthmus with Panama, a different type of impassable jungle, and you have elsewhere highlands where cattle graze and where coffee is produced. It's it's a country that has a wide range of different uh, environments. And from a military history perspective, the environment dramatically affects the way that military operations can be played out. And so if we're talking about the government's war against the drug kingpins, it very much mattered whether they were conducting operations in the Andes or in the jungle or in the highlands. So in some ways, both in military history and in sort of cultural, social history more generally, is it safe to say that Narcos and a lot of shows like it are falling back on sort of tropes and motifs of the global South as this undifferentiated, deeply impoverished, mostly sort of rural or or jungly part of the world, the sorts of things that let you reuse the same Hollywood sets to shoot Rambo, to shoot Narcos, to shoot uh, The Gods Must Be Crazy. Um, All of these in a sort of undifferentiated, rural, pastoral as you said, backwards sort of a world. Yeah, so Narcos does do that quite often. Though, as I mentioned earlier, they do pay lip service to the cities, but in that sense, they portray a different type of third-worldness, if you will. The cities are shanty towns where listless, unemployed men uh, leer out at the main characters as they pass by, where the women are selling their bodies, and where the people have nothing productive to offer. And the way that that plays out through the plot, I think, is is through the presence of the two DEA agents who are the protagonists of Narcos. Uh, Steve Murphy, who's played by Boyd Holbrook, and Javier Peña, who's played by Pedro Pascal. And the fact that this series presents this Colombian narrative through the perspective of two American DEA agents, I think is significant. Uh, One of the narrative devices frequently employed to propel the story onward is images, a montage of violence, while uh, Steve Murphy does his gravelly narration over it, a sort of American narrator to a Colombian tragedy. Well, and I think it's interesting that not only are they American narrators, 
they are federal law enforcement narrators. It's a it's a particular vision of the the Colombian narco wars, not as a Colombian problem. If it stayed in Colombia, what do we care? The problem is, is that the powder's coming north. Right. Uh, and the way that it portrays that movement, that sort of exchange of, of goods, if you will, is one that implicates not just the drug kingpins themselves, but also the Colombian law enforcement and the Colombian, Colombian government with complicity. At best, they are ignorant of the problem or unable to do anything because of their impotence in the face of the vast wealth of the kingpins. At worst, they are themselves corrupt officials, part of the problem, facilitating this, uh, this spread of cocaine and, and of violence and actively impeding the good faith efforts of the Americans who have come all the way down to Colombia to help the Colombians out with their own problem. So one thing that we always like to talk about on this podcast is kind of the, the choices made by the people creating media, whether that's a filmmaker or a showrunner or a video game uh, studio. So you've been talking a lot about, you know, this backwards Colombia, as you're calling it, these different representations of Colombians, which are wholly negative on a spectrum. Could you talk a little bit about who's making the show Narcos? And could you, you know, maybe speculate a little bit about why this representation of Colombia is the representation that they chose to follow in Narcos? Narcos is produced by Netflix, so it's certainly not a Colombian media production. And what I think Netflix might have been trying to do is not necessarily to explicitly relegate Colombia to this backwards state simply because they have something out against Colombians, but rather because it presents an exotic setting for consumers who most likely will not be familiar with the culture or the country beyond what they already know, most likely about Pablo Escobar himself. So to a sense, Netflix has to give the people not even necessarily what they want, but what they're comfortable with, if this is going to be a successful commercial enterprise. Right. And there's a precedent that's been established with regards to the way that crime series are represented that is that goes independent of the portrayal of Colombia, right? We have Breaking Bad, we have The Sopranos. So there is this idea of an anti-hero mob boss kingpin that Pablo Escobar fits quite nicely into. So in that sense, it is not, it's not necessarily a departure from established tropes in the crime genre. So speaking of crime genre, because this is, this is something I wanted to ask you today, how does the depiction of Pablo Escobar as this sort of uh, an anti-hero sort of protagonist, how does it differ when you're doing Pablo Escobar on Netflix versus, say, Tony Soprano, versus, say, Don Corleone? How does the fact that he is non-American, that he's Latino, enter into this? Well, I think that the way that they portray Pablo Escobar uh, in many ways is similar. He's very romantic. He's somebody who's emotional, but who is a family man. He does things because there is a sense of personal honor attached to his motivations and his behavior and 
the types of violence that he carries out always has some sort of perverse logic to it that in real life isn't sympathetic, but the way that the series presents it always emphasizes the fact that Pablo Escobar is retaliating against the perceived slight. So in that sense, I think there's a lot of communion with the Tony Sopranos or the Walter Whites that we see in other series. But when it comes to portraying him as a Latino, I think that one of the things they like to emphasize is uh, the way that the Spanish language conveys different types of, of meanings with the way it's used. So for instance, there's Escobar's famous uh, slogan, plata o plomo, literally silver or lead, but more broadly speaking, it implies you can take a bribe or you can take a bullet. And it shows him as a supremely confident masculine figure, the machismo that uh, is prevalent uh, in, in many different countries in, in Latin America, in the culture. And so you have a man, Pablo Escobar, as a man who is asserting his dominance in a world of other men seeking to assert their dominance. And the way that he does it is through climbing the ladder to the top of the crime world. And he can assert his dominance over both other members of that crime world as well as members of the government, members of the police in Colombian society at large. Let me take this in a, a little bit of a different direction. To go from these issues of representation to how well they match some of the actual history, you know, you've talked about problems with the way corruption is portrayed, um, and, and we can talk more about that. We've talked about problems with the ways American interventionism is, is portrayed, and I hope we talk more about that. To what, to what extent is Narcos matching the evidence in this case? In many ways, the timeline is accurate in the sense that it represents major watershed moments in Escobar's rise to power and his catastrophic fall from it. It showcases uh, critical moments like the 1985 Palace of Justice siege when the M19 guerrilla movement stormed uh, Colombia's uh, seat of its uh, judicial branch and in the resulting uh, attack, 11 or 12 of the Colombian Supreme Court justices were killed. And Narcos suggests that this was an attack that was funded by Escobar. There are certainly conspiracy theories that, are, that surround this event. Um, but what's interesting is the way that Narcos relegates the existence of these diverse actors who also participate in this violence, be they Marxist guerrillas, right-wing paramilitary groups, the police themselves, they're all relegated to a position of subservience to Pablo Escobar, that the narrative of Colombia's violence is first and foremost a narrative of narco-violence. And that's not necessarily the case. Um, another example of, the, of an episode of violence they showcase is the uh, November 1989 bombing of an Avianca airliner, which was orchestrated by Pablo Escobar to explode mid-air over Bogota. And that was an incident that really turned public opinion against Pablo Escobar, because prior to that point, he had 
sort of navigated a thin line between bandit and hero, a sort of Robin Hood, if you will, because in the very poor parts of Medellin, he would sponsor and finance constructions of hospitals. He would provide medicine for people whose children were ill. He would improve their soccer fields. And so in many parts of Medellin, uh, Pablo Escobar was seen, was perceived quite positively. And it was moments like this where he explodes an airplane over the capital city that starts to turn public opinion against him. And that's the way that the series depicts the shift from his glamorous ascension to power into his spiral into madness as he attempts to hold on to it by all means necessary. So it sounds to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that that Narcos is really presenting a a version of Colombian history where all roads lead back to Escobar, um, kind of flattening the country's history and attributing it to this one man. Why do you think that Escobar is this continued kind of poster boy for Colombian history in pieces of media made for predominantly non-Colombian audiences? That's an interesting question. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that he was one of the wealthiest people on the planet and that his criminal empire superseded anything that had been seen previously. The, the Medellin cartel had so much money that they ended up spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on rubber bands to be able to tie their stacks of money together. They had nowhere to put the money, so they ended up burying them in the ground until it became moldy. There was so much actual cash flowing in through their system that there was a considerable amount simply lost to degradation. And so I think that that's a type of phenomenon, a type of system that captures people's imagination because you have to stop and say, how does somebody get that wealthy and so powerful, especially when you have your country's government dedicating all of its resources to taking you down, especially when you have United States support in trying to bring you down? And how do you navigate that where you have so much wealth and power and yet the ways in which you can actually use that power and use that money are somewhat limited for that reason. So you've talked a little bit about how some of the issues we have to think about with Narcos is that it is a show produced by Americans to a large extent by an American company for an American audience um, and notably featuring a lot of actors who are playing Colombians that are not themselves Colombian. Before recording today, you talked to us about um, a somewhat different take on the Escobar story, um, and that's a Colombian telenovela. Right. So that series is called Escobar el Patrón del Mal, or Escobar the Godfather of Evil. And it's produced by Caracol Internacional, which is Colombia's one of Colombia's main uh, centers of media production. The series was produced with a domestic Colombian audience in mind, but it was also intended for an international audience because Caracol ended up giving the series to Netflix. So one of the problems that I had with Narcos was that the actors are largely not Colombian. Uh, most prominently, Wagner Mora, who plays Pablo Escobar, is Brazilian and not a native Spanish speaker. But even for those actors who are native Spanish speakers, 
they're not necessarily Colombian, and so their accents can be quite different. Certainly a Cuban or a Mexican has a different accent than a Colombian when they speak Spanish. Now, for an American audience, perhaps that's superfluous and will neither be noticed nor commented on. But with El Patrón del Mal, you do have an all-Colombian cast, which I think adds a certain amount of authenticity to the feel or the flavor of the narrative. However, that doesn't mean that El Patrón del Mal is 100% accurate or that it gets the story right simply because it was produced by Colombians. So how does its vision of Escobar differ from that in Narcos, given that it's for at least originally a domestic audience and even to the extent it's distributed on, on Netflix for at least a, a largely Spanish language audience? What El Patrón del Mal does is it tells Pablo Escobar's story in a telenovela style. So as much as the stereotypes about telenovelas are accurate, El Patrón del Mal can tend towards the histrionic side of telling a story. So while Wagner Mora's Escobar in Narcos is a very calm, collected uh, kingpin who delivers one-liners from the shadows, uh, the actor who portrays Escobar in El Patrón del Mal, Andrés Parra, delivers his lines uh, in a sweating, screaming mess as he watches his empire crumble apart between his fingers. And it's an interesting difference in terms of the representation of the character because you're not quite as sympathetic to Escobar in El Patrón del Mal. And perhaps you're not supposed to be given that this is coming from the country that he terrorized for years, but it doesn't reduce him to a caricature either. And so it portrays him as somebody who is trying to navigate a space where he's not, where he continues to see himself as the victim. And so that's something that you have in common between Narcos and El Patrón del Mal. Escobar is always acting out of this sort of deep-seated need for revenge, something that I think speaks more broadly to the Colombian experience of violence that goes well into the 19th century. Could you talk a little more about that? that history of revenge? Yeah, so one thing that's important to understand about Colombia's violence, uh, whether we're talking about the narco wars or the ongoing conflict with FARC, or if we're talking about the wars of liberation and the dozens of civil wars that emerged during the 1800s, is that it was a highly charged political type of violence. The two dominant parties in Colombia were and largely remained the conservative and the liberal parties. And over the course of these civil wars and this internal turmoil emerged a type of deep-seated generational hatred for the enemy. And what I mean by that is the opposing faction, oftentimes from a political perspective. One's political affiliation in Colombia historically was something that was inherited from your family. So you might be liberal or conservative, and it might have no bearing on the party's actual policies or how they would represent you, but it just has to do with the fact that, well, my parents were conservatives, my grandparents were conservatives, I'm a conservative. Then if you apply that to the logic of the civil wars, 
one's political affiliation becomes even more deeply entrenched because then you can say, well, in the last civil war, the liberals killed my father. I will never forgive them for this. Or you can say in, in the civil war that I'm currently fighting in, the other party killed my brother. And so these are things that you can never forgive and you certainly never forget. It takes on a generational dynamic where this need for revenge gets passed down. And so this is not to say that all Colombians will never forgive anybody or that, you know, that there are psychopaths who are always out for revenge, but rather that the lived historical experience of violence in Colombia from its emergence as a state is deeply and markedly affected by this need to settle scores, this perpetual cycle of violence. And I think that you can see that applied in Narcos and in El Patron del Mal. So even though we're not necess necessarily supposed to root for Escobar in kind of tapping into this historical experience of vengeance and revenge, he's someone who is kind of relatable in a way? It, it's not something that applies only to Escobar. For instance, in El Patron del Mal, there are frequent subplots that focus on specific police or army officers who occupy uh, positions of command for units that are hunting down Escobar. And oftentimes they have reasons to seek revenge against the drug king, kingpins themselves. Uh, the search block or the bloque de búsqueda um, was commanded by a series of officers who, at least in the series, are represented as wanting to uh, take vengeance for the deaths of their predecessors who were colleagues and friends uh, in that cycle of violence that Escobar unleashed when he put bounties on the heads of police officers writ large across the country. So is it fair to say that one of the things Narcos is doing thematically is contrasting what it sees as two very different styles of violence, a Colombian um, style of violence that is deeply personal, deeply generational, um, sort of the, the violence of the feud and the vendetta, versus, on the other hand, the actions of these DEA agents who have no personal stake, at least not initially, and who are committing uh, gratuitous violence in Colombia because they were ordered to by their state. So this might be kind of a spoiler, but Pablo Escobar does get killed at the end of season two. And I think that that scene where he dies sort of speaks to this type of contrast in the depiction of violence. Uh, Pablo Escobar is chased across a rooftop as the bloque de búsqueda with the two DEA agents attached uh discover his position and chase him. He is shot, he falls, and as he lays there mortally wounded on the roof tiles and the police officers surround him, you have the the DEA agent Steve Murphy's uh, gratuitous narration overlaid as he ruminates on the meaning of violence and looking this monster in the eye. And then all of a sudden his inner thoughts are interrupted almost in a sort of darkly comedic way as one of the Colombian police officers abruptly shoots Escobar in the head. And I think that sort of gets at, it, it deconstructs the presence and the necessity of these DEA agents 
that while Steve Murphy wants to have this moment and make it about himself as he has his inner monologue with his slow, gravelly voice, that there are still these Colombian police officers around him and that they've seen dozens of their friends and colleagues be assassinated by sicarios on Pablo Escobar's orders. And for them to take that final act of revenge into their hands and literally interrupt the American character's monologue says something, I think. So in a way, it's almost like, at least in its final episode, the creators of this show were aware that there's a discomfort to making this Steve Murphy story, that maybe the story they'd been telling through this one focalizer, this one perspective uh, for the audience, was never his story at all, not really. Yeah, and I think that they certainly took that to heart a bit more as they moved on into the third season where they shifted their focus from the Medellin cartel to the Cali cartel. So they still kept it rooted in Colombia, but they firstly divorced it from the Escobar narrative and they also sidelined the characters of the DEA agents to a more marginal role. So all of these kind of comparisons and, and differences between the portrayal of people, whether that's Escobar or uh, police police officers in Colombia, between these two shows is really interesting. I'd like to loop back to what you talked about a little bit at the beginning, which is the land itself, the, the country itself. So could you talk a little bit about how this telenovela portray as something made by Colombians, at least initially for Colombians, how does that show portray Colombia, the country? I think one of the things that El Patron del Mal doesn't do that Narcos emphasizes is showcase the scenery and the landscape. You get an image of Colombia, certainly, but it's not highlighted for the sake of pointing out the majestic vista because it's not supposed to be exotic because for the people who live there, it's their home, it's normal. It wouldn't seem exotic and so there's no need to call attention to it. Additionally, the scenes in the city don't highlight the type of extreme poverty that is certainly present, but it doesn't need to be called out because they are aware of it, they have experienced it, and it doesn't need to be put under a magnifying glass for curious American spectators to gawk at before they move on to the next thing. So the way that Colombia is represented in El Patron del Mal, as they move from the police headquarters in Bogota to Escobar's hideouts in various places throughout the countryside, you get an image of what Colombia looks like to people who live in Colombia. Something that creates a sense of everyday normalcy about the places and the scenes through which the characters act out the plot. We usually like to end these episodes by pivoting towards what this discourse, this way of talking about, well, in this case, Colombia and Colombianness and violence, what impact that has on the real world? How does the way Narcos, where we started, how does the way that they're telling this story affect the lives of people uh, who may never have seen the show, who may not have a Netflix subscription? How does that play out? Well, the biggest thing that I can certainly speak to, even as somebody who isn't a Colombian national, but of Colombian descent, is that it 
foregrounds the idea that Colombia is a place to be associated with cocaine. And I cannot tell you how many times I have talked to somebody, an acquaintance or somebody I just met, and it comes out that my family's from Colombia, and the first thing that I'll get in response is, oh, great cocaine or great blow, right? And it's a really offensive stereotype. And at that moment, you sort of have to question if it's worth it to even correct the person or just sort of grin through your teeth and move on. But that's one thing that the series does as important as the history is that Narcos and El Patron del Mal, by putting Escobar as the center point of the narrative, they also foreground that episode as one of the most important parts of Colombian history and of Colombian national identity. So part of the problem is that, to my knowledge at least, nowhere else in mainstream American media is a, any different story of Colombia being told. This is, this is the one tale we're getting. Right. And as, as concerns the American presence, even in Narcos, there is something that's missing that I think is of primary importance here, and that's the war on drugs. There is no exploration about the broader impact of the United States policies and attitudes towards criminalizing and prosecuting uh, not only distributors of the drugs, but also the consumers. And that's something that goes beyond just Colombia, although obviously in Narcos that plays out across the screen as Steve Murphy and Javier Peña shoot tons of brown people who are random extras to fill up the body count. But this has implications in the United States too. The Reagan administration and then Bush, they don't even get mentioned in these series. The Colombian presidents, uh, Belisario Betancur, and then later Cesar Gaviria, feature as characters in the series. Uh, And they're almost downgraded in a sense because they aren't portrayed as interacting with the U.S. president. They're not equals. They're interacting with DEA officials. They're interacting with police officials. And so they aren't represented as world leaders. They're almost represented as these individuals who are part of this backwards locality, if we return back to that idea and that you know, that there's no broader implication about U.S. responsibility or about U.S.-Colombian cooperation and parity in these anti-drug operations. One other thing, you know, that certainly comes to mind for me is the sort of blanket perception advanced by the current president of the United States, especially by Stephen Miller and some other figures in his administration, that the image of South America and Central America and Mexico getting from narcos is that this is south and central america and and more insidiously this is the people who live there and try to come from there to here yeah i think that one possible takeaway from narcos is that the people who might be coming to the united states are refugees from violence that they are not the people who are carrying out the acts of violence but they're the ones who are driven from their homes because of the bombs and because of the shootings and because of that type of violence that has saturated everyday life. And so, right, when we're talking about Colombia, this is how it was in the 80s and into the early mid-90s, a time when even my father left Colombia and came to the United States. 
And then as as the series progresses to Mexico, where some of these drug kingpin characters become more contemporary, and as the violence becomes more contemporary, there isn't this effort to highlight the fact that we're moving from the 80s and 90s into a different time period. There's this sort of timelessness about the violence in Latin America that sort of suggests it doesn't really matter when this happened because it's still happening. And the implication, therefore, is that this is how it always was and this is how it always will be, that this violence is endemic to the region and that it says something about the people who live there. Well, thanks so much for sitting down and talking to us, Marlon. I really enjoyed it. Thanks very much for having me. 